0: This is episode 134 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And this episode, we have a snake, oh, finally, another snake-focused episode. It feels like it's been a while. It probably hasn't, but I can't be sad when we're doing a snake-focused episode.
1: Yeah, no, it's always nice to talk about snakes, and we've actually got another Patreon request this episode, so we had a Patreon request from Emily O'Brien. Emily wanted something, well, she gave us a few options, which is always good, because lots of things actually don't have much written about them. Well, and I feel like
0: a lot of patrons out there, they ask very good questions, and the reasons they're very good questions is because they're not answered quite yet, (laughs) or in a satisfying way. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually really... This balance between people having yet yeah, they know what the next question is and people are having yet to answer it.
1: Yeah, I think our listenership's got their fingers on the pulse mm-hmm. of herpetology. So yeah, Emily wanted something either from the region of Boston, Massachusetts in the USA, which unfortunately we've not managed to accomplish, or garter snakes or DK's brown snakes. Well, we just did garter snakes recently and we couldn't find anything cool about DK's brown snakes, which is Storeria DKI, those like little snakes of the garden the little slug eaters over in america couldn't find anything about them unfortunately but emily was also interested in drought so she told a story about how it rained last year for the entire month of july during which time her garden was awash with little snakes toads and salamanders but sounds like a wonderful garden (laughs) doesn't it yeah yeah i would love to be able to find i mean a salamander in the garden what a treat but this year in contrast big time drought and uh, lots of dry areas. And although there is water on the landscape, there's lots of dry places. And so Emily was interested in how drought might affect common animals. We're looking at increased climate fluctuations, lots more droughts, wet periods as climate change changes climate. And um, yeah, Emily was interested to see how populations might recover after a bad year or how they're affected by drought. And, um, We did actually manage to find a paper about drought and it's about drought and rattlesnakes. So although we haven't managed, we're on the wrong side of the United States and we couldn't find anything about any of these cool little garden animals. We have managed to find an actual study where they look at the effects of drought on some snakes and they do it well. So um, I'll introduce the paper. It's by Cape Hart, Escaon, Vernasco, Moore and Taylor, 2016. No drought about it. Effects of Supplemental Hydration on the Ecology, Behavior, and Physiology of Free-Ranging Rattlesnakes, published in the Journal of Arid Environments. So, it seems kind of intuitive, doesn't it, Ben? You've been dehydrated in your life, have you?
0: Yeah, constantly.
1: Constantly? No, it's yeah, all right. I had,
0: I had a cup of tea before we started, so I'm actually I'm good to go. I'm okay, a, well, hydrated, a hydrated podcaster.
1: <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. So, yeah, you know, we will experience that. I don't know about you. When I get dehydrated before I feel thirsty, I get a little bit of a headache. It's not very nice. Yep. That's my first cue that maybe I should have a drink of water. And, you know, of course, we also perform less well when we're dehydrated. Water is extremely fundamental to the functioning of our meaty bodies. And snakes are no different. I mean, they're likely to be no different. But the idea behind this paper, we're talking about the... Western Pacific rattlesnake, Crotalus oregonus, which admittedly you know is the opposite side of the USA to Massachusetts, but
0: but presumably snake physiology is relatively consistent. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, sure water. Has some implications, yeah.
1: Yeah, but this is a rattlesnake from the western edge of the United States. So they're from like southwestern Canada through western USA and into western Mexico. So that whole western side of North America. And Oregonus, I never really thought about it. I thought maybe they were... They know. smell like oregano. What are you saying oregano like that for? Well, ben? it's an you American two... snake, isn't it? That is... Come on now. I'm
0: being culturally appropriate for this specific rattlesnake.
1: Are you being culturally appropriate, Ben? Or are you just mispronouncing a word? Oregano. The issue
0: I have with oregano and oregano is I don't like either of those words.
1: <laughs> yeah, oregano. Maybe we should just make it organo. 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 That's better. That sounds way better. Yeah. Know, which... Organo. But anyway, organo. Yeah, Crotalus oreganus. And the reason it's called that is because the type locality was on the banks of the Oregon, otherwise known as the Columbia River. So it's actually called oreganus because of its affinity with Oregon. And nothing to do with herbs. Nothing to do with herbs. Um, No, just purely because of that relation to Oregon, which is kind of cool. But the authors of this paper were doing their fieldwork in California, which is kind of the sort of center of the species range. And they wanted to see how snakes would respond to either being dehydrated or not. And the first step in finding that out was to catch up a bunch of these rattlesnakes, put radio transmitters in them. 21. And separate. 21 total. Yeah, I think 19 they got enough data from to be worthwhile for most of the analysis yes a couple got a couple got got one died it said by eating a meal that was too large yes that was a mistake seems a bit weird it does seem a bit weird i was like yeah okay (laughs) died eating a meal too big someone trod on it um no (laughs) (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Yeah, no, I found the snake. It had this massive rat in it. Yeah, no, anyways, this seems quite a random death, but I'm sure it does happen. So, yeah, a couple died. I can't remember why the others died, but yeah.
0: One was infection. Uh, One was predation.
1: Oh, really? Post-operative complication? Well, they don't say that, Mm. but you would assume so. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, so they had, in the end, they ended up with 19 of these rattlesnakes, 10 In one group, nine in the other group. And one of them was assigned to be what I refer to as the Hydro Homies group. They were going to get supplementarily given water via a syringe a few times over the course of the uh, active season. Whereas the other group, the Dry Gang, they were not given water. So you have
0: these two groups. They were still handled in a way that was comparable to the water group. Because what you didn't want to do is leave them completely alone. Because then you don't know if it's the effect of hydrating the snakes or hydrating the snakes and stressing them out like you need that sort of control stress what did they call it a sham procedure
1: yeah so they basically the the way they got the water into the snakes was they'd catch them and then they'd put a like catheter tube down and then they'd just pour water once the there was like a tube going down i mean i guess it's the same way you'd rehydrate a person like you'd you'd use a drip i suppose but yeah just a tube down into the stomach and then they literally just poured 25 mils which is a shot of uh, water down into each snake that was getting the water and the ones which weren't getting water had the tube inserted, but then no water went down it. So yeah, they've had the same experience just without the water. Right. And um, yeah, they wanted to see whether or not the snakes, which were given water, therefore you can assume hydrated. And they actually did check and they were more hydrated. They wanted to see if that would have any effects on them based off and obviously they're radio tracking them. So they've got little radio transmitters in them. They can track them down every day and they can see how much space they're using and how far they're going every day. They were also interested in the reproductive success of the females. And I think there was four females in each group or three in one group and four in another group. So they wanted to see whether ones which were given extra water would have more babies or more successful breeding attempts. And then they did some other stuff to do with distress. They were collecting a stress hormone to see if the ones which had more or less water were more or less stressed, And yeah, they were comparing how much they moved across the two groups. And so uh, body condition study. as well. Oh, and of course, yep. body condition, Classic. a big one. Yeah, Are they want, you know, is a snake which has been given water measurably healthier by a body condition inse- index, which is like a measure of fatness.
0: Right. And they did correct for having
1: put water in the snake too. Because <laughs> yeah, they really that's isn't?
0: obviously... Sort of increasing
1: its weight. Oh my gosh, this snake's 25 millimetres bigger. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. They did keep an eye out for that. And uh, yeah, let's talk about it. So, you know, these are rattlesnakes. They're existing in this like scrubby habitat on the uh, edge of the ocean in California. Obviously an environment which is pretty dry. Yeah. So being given extra water could be perceived to be quite a helpful thing.
0: They said annual rainfall of around 43 centimetres a year.
1: I'm parched just thinking about that. Yeah,
0: it's not much. It's not much. And they were saying that the previous years had been even drier. So we have a population of rattlesnakes that are prime for being... Well, I suppose they don't know that they're near water stress at all. That's one of the sort of caveats that they bring up in the discussion, is they don't know how dehydrated their control snakes are. They might not be dehydrated at all.
1: Yeah, they did say they might have actually been accidentally overhydrating snakes. Yes. (laughs) The (laughs) snakes don't want it. They have no baseline to work from. Yeah, but I think based on their results... Which we'll talk about, it does seem like there were some benefits to being hydrated. Definitely. So let's just hit the big one first, which they concede they can't actually like say with sort of certainty because of how few they actually did this experiment on. But it seemed like basically all the females that were given water gave birth to yep. live young and all the ones which weren't given water did not give birth to live young.
0: Yeah, so it was four hydrated route snakes versus three non hydrated, I believe, for the
1: yeah. So on the yeah. face of it, that kind of seems like the water helped. But because there's so few in the sample, they can't say it wasn't chance. But certainly that is like a bit of a indication that helping having extra water potentially helped. And they do talk in the paper about how egg yolk is mainly water. A lot of water goes into the production of young inside female snakes. So it would be likely that water might have helped however right. they would have already either been or not been gravid with young before the study started so if water helped it's because it assisted in the development of embryos rather than increasing the likelihood that they would fall gravid yes so it's like and
0: it's they were like it staves off that uh, need to reabsorb them if you're under sudden water stress later on during the whole sort of reproductive process yeah.
1: And I think that's crucial to what they said is like, yeah, we can't say whether the females made young because of this. But if the other group were dehydrated, then they would have been able to absorb, you know, snakes are pretty flexible like that. And I'm sure it varies a lot species to species, but by and large, if you have eggs or young developing new you as a snake and times take a turn for the worse, it's generally accepted that they can reabsorb them up to a certain point and just change their minds about reproducing. So that might have been what happened here with the snakes, which weren't given water. They can't say for sure, but there's certainly an indication that it's worth exploring more and it might be beneficial to snakes to have more water when producing young. Mhm. Yeah. Beyond that though, what about their fatness? Were they healthier? they had water
0: basically yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was good
1: short answer yeah yeah they found a significant difference didn't they the ones which had been given the supplemental water had a higher body condition index than the ones that didn't so they were fatter happier snakes at the end of the study and it was more fatter and happier than you would expect So just than just having the extra water added on board they were actually like healthier in general
0: right we haven't really mentioned what body condition index really is basically it's a weight or mass measure but it accounts for how long the snake is it's like
1: snake bmi right yeah it basically is snake bmi they just replaced the m with a c yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah you give snakes water it seems as though they have more babies and it also definitely makes them healthier and then the other things they looked at were their home range size sort of like space use of the snakes they didn't find that it was like significantly different between the hydrated gang and the non-hydrated gang. But there was, like, a bit more movement in the males which were hydrated, just not enough to be significant. So yeah,
0: there was a lot of overlap, basically. A lot, a lot of overlap. And similar sort of overlap for their home range sizes, which... Yeah, I mean, you know, polygon stuff, pretty pretty shaky. And they were tracked, yeah. what, like, best part of once a week? So... I don't know. I take a lot of the movement stuff with a huge pinch of salt because mm. I do wonder whether there's a lot more fine scale movement because like a week to week difference is <laughs> not, mm. not going to be too dramatic if you can, while you're moving from point A to point B over your week, find some water along the route.
1: Yeah. You know, rattlesnakes ambush predators. They're not, they're by and large, not doing like long moves unless they're particularly looking for something. Right. So There's probably going to be a lot of periods where they're quite near to where they were. But yeah, Yeah. in the intervening period, have the non-thirsty ones tried out more locations for ambush? Possibly, like, yeah.
0: Or the opposite, because there's this whole idea that if they're low on water, they're going to go into a sort of conserving mode too. So potentially they're skipping out on lots of, like, small readjustments and just bedding Mm. down in one spot.
1: That's my point too. Yeah, Yeah, that's my point too. Yeah, so interesting. But yeah, like you said, a bit of a pinch of salt with the uh, space use. And there was a lot of variability as well, which you kind of expect for like sedentary animals like this. Some of them seem to be movers and shakers. Others, Well,
0: and it takes very little to induce that sort of variation. If you've got a whole bunch of individuals that don't move very much, they stay within the same sort of five metre area for the best part of three weeks. Then suddenly one decides, oh, I'm going to move and it goes 100 metres Well, now you've got ranges between 5 and 100 (laughs) metres. You know, it's yeah, it's very easy to induce that sort of crazy variation quickly.
1: Yeah. And then they also finally looked at the stress hormones and it didn't seem to be a uh, long-term stressor being dehydrated. They didn't seem to upset.
0: if they're dehydrated. So it might be indicating that they're not really dehydrated at this point. It's just like, yeah, they're chilling. They can handle these sort of dry California climates and... The other ones are just... They've just got bonus water. They're doing...
1: But would also... would. It seems to me that, like, if you were dehydrated, adding stress to being dehydrated doesn't really seem beneficial. Like, <laughs> surely you know you're thirsty, regardless of whether or not you're stressed about it. I don't know. Seems weird. I don't know if cortisol would actually play a role in dehydration. I don't know. It's something I just don't know. Yeah, I don't know I mean, like When you're thirsty, you're not, like, actively stressed about it. Oh, you're just like, oh, I should get a drink.
0: No, but that's also assuming that body's reactions to... Stresses are entirely like sensible yeah true. you know that. like yeah, true that. It's a all you have to piece. think about is like viral infections and fevers that do a lot of damage to other places or stuff like that it can especially lack of water like that can sabotage all sorts of bodily processes can't it
1: yeah yeah so we got these crotellus oreganus rattlesnakes the Western Pacific rattlesnakes and yeah, the hydrated ones were fatter, happier, healthier. Generally, they seemed to be having more offspring if they were well hydrated, but we can't say for sure. So I think going back to Emily's question, you know, she was interested in how species cope with increasing climate variations from year to year. And it would seem that at least in the case of Western Pacific rattlesnakes, they are fatter and happier in wetter periods potentially than uh, drier ones and yeah there's this smoking gun about the offspring so yeah i mean it, we see this sometimes don't we when we look at i remember those lizards on the volcano phimaturus there's a lot of variation in their lives from mm-hmm. year to year and you know after a volcanic eruption they just don't breed for a few years you know it might be fair to see to think that the same is true for extreme drought situations for snakes and lizards um Yeah. It's a bit soon to say that, but yeah, there's definitely uh, an indication.
0: Yeah, they have this... I mean, there's also like the marine iguanas shrinking down during times of like low food availability and things. It does feel like a lot of... Well, and they bring up uh, Gila monsters in this this paper as an example in the discussion too. There seems to be plenty of reptile species that have an additional buffer Mm. against these sort of very harsh climate events or weather events even. Yeah, how far that can be pushed or, you know, you combine... This with, like, another stressor and things get really bad, so it's very quickly gets very complicated to be able to predict it. But certainly with things like snakes, at least it seems like they've got a buffer. I mean, that's something.
1: Yeah. I mean, these are very drought-adapted animals anyway, right. so they can probably take very little rain. But, um, yeah, it's probably better when they don't have to too much. I mean, I'm sure that there's many species for which climate change is going to bring about too much rain. So
0: Well, and who says these aren't on the cusp of that? Because... Rain brings increased moisture and stuff. We know, like, snake fungal disease stuff causing issues for a whole heap of species. And, yeah, you start... We were talking about parasites a few episodes ago. There's all these uh, sort of extra stresses that can come with more... It's never just one thing. It's never just going to be hydration. And even if just hydration in this example is already affecting, like, reproductive success and body condition... I wouldn't be surprised if it's also affecting movement at finer scales. Like, I know they didn't find anything here, but there was... Eh, maybe. <laughs> mm. I'm not yeah. convinced that a no on that front. Mm.
1: All right, well, there we go. Let's uh, move on from drought and rattlesnakes and talk about our species of the bi-week. So this is a paper by Yodthong, Rijarawan, uh, Stuart, Grisma, Axonium, Temprayun, Ampai Alpol 2022, a new species in the certodactylus oldemai group from Kanchanaburi province, Western Thailand, published in Zuki's. And we've got to give shouts to Arm Axonium, who's one of the authors. He's our friend. So congratulations, Arm and everyone else on describing this really cool species of gecko. Me and Ben both know Arm from our time in Thailand volunteering and, well, Ben subsequently working at uh, Sakarat Biosphere Reserve. So, yeah, good times with Arm and it's cool to see that he's come out with this paper about geckos. And uh, Certodactylus, very cool South and Southeast Asian group of geckos, known as the bent-toed geckos because they've got really, their toes are bent. (laughs) Yeah, their toes are bent, but it's more like they look extra bent because um, they're not fat. Like if you think of like a leopard gecko's toe, they call them um, dilated toes, right? They're sort of like fat. It's sort of like splodges, you know, it's like a wide toe. And that helps. It's obviously a lot more surface area for gripping stuff. But these bent-toed geckos, they don't have that. They have these skinny little toes and they do look just a bit bent. They have those weird little claws. So um, that's why they're called Sertodactylus. And they're very speciose, right? There's loads of these little Sertodactylus geckos. This genus ranks third in total number of species for vertebrate genera and there's
0: current there's more and more being described all the time I mean
1: even the phylogeny in this paper half of the species in the phylogeny haven't got names yet yeah but they're so like it's gonna get more
0: they pop up in these caste landscapes they're one of those groups so you can imagine there's a species per like cast basically
1: Yeah, so the karst landscapes are these kind of like Swiss cheese rocks that have the green lichen growing on them in Thailand's forests. They're really beautiful and, like, they tend to be associated with areas of, like, just slightly higher elevation. There's, like, these rocky outcrops of karst limestone. And this species is no different. It's found in a little outcrop in uh, Kanchanaburi province. And, yeah, they just found it in 2019. And also in 2021, they were in... uh, Kanchanaburi province. This is in western Thailand, sort of hilly western area of the country. And yeah, the authors found some geckos, which they suspected might represent a new species. And um, sure enough, they've done some genetic and morphological investigations. And yeah, this population.
0: And the geckos are polite enough to have a field mark, which helps distinguish them from ones nearby too. Like a visible field mark.
1: Yeah, what is it?
0: It's this lovely little... They've got a lovely row of like... Yellow dots along their flank, which is meant to separate them from very (laughs) similar-looking species.
1: Yeah, so all these ceratodactylus geckos are—they're generally really beautiful. Like, very. Yeah, they've got the kind of like big eyes. They look a bit like cat geckos. They're just like really sort of streamlined. They tend to be sort of a brown base color with like white bands or white splodges and brown. This particular species has got a bandy white tail, which is really common in geckos. I think that is a sort of... Bite me here. Yeah, bite me here, and even just a bit of a startle camouflage probably when they move. Yes, perhaps, um, yeah. Because it seems got, to be
0: more pronounced on juveniles too.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, as is the case for loads of geckos too, Yeah. Right? Yeah, and then, so they've got the bandy tail, and then the there's like blotches of brown on a kind of like goldy, peachy base color and yeah just like awesome big gecko eyes <laughs> yeah they're just really nice they're just really nice looking gecko and um this one they've called it certidactylus monilatus and so you mentioned this like row of like they look like beads along the flanks and it's actually named for that feature Monilatus is taken from the Latin monil, which means necklace or string of beads and latus for flank. So it's like literally monilatus, string of beads, flank. And exactly as you said, Ben, these two small yellowish rows of spots along the sides, which really stick out and they resemble a beaded necklace. I just think that's a fantastic name to have given this animal. Yeah, Easily identify it by that in the field. Easy to remember because it means something. Yeah, love it. In stark contrast, they actually say that that row of beads is a good way of recognising it distinguishing it from the closely related species which is Certodactylus zebraticus zebraticus by the way is a stripy one and I had a look at the 1962 paper where it was described and they didn't say explicitly but I'm pretty sure it's named after a zebra because it's black and white and stripy (laughs) which I hate (laughs) Um, understandably so give this creature agency don't name it after an existing horse (laughs) Anyway, so such is life. But this new one, they've given a fantastic name, Certidactylus monolatus. So kudos for that. And it's the habitat looks just brilliant, classic, dry forest in Thailand. Just like nice big green li- limestone cast rocks and just forest. Yeah, and these Sertedaculus tend to scurry around on the forest floor. They're found during the dry season a lot, uh, scurrying around on rocks, hanging on low branches, predating loving on Loving bamboo on the floor. Yeah, loving the bamboo. But yeah, brand new to science, Certidactylus monolatus. About Great stuff.
0: The holotype is uh, just shy of six centimeters SVL. Nice.
1: So, So, probably like, what, like a 10, 12 centimeter lizard in total?
0: Yeah. Yeah. About the right
1: size? Yeah. Love that. Cool. Well, there we go. Sertidactylus monolatus. Ben, do you care to guess how many species there are according to Reptile Database in Sertidactylus?
0: You said it was the third largest genus, huh?
1: Yeah. And like Anolis has some ungodly number. Yeah, I think it's behind Anolis. I think.
0: I would assume so. I reckon there are 56.
1: 56? That's your guess? Yeah. Third highest? No, no, no. There's 335. Holy smokes. And in contrast, Anolis has 437.
0: So yeah. Oh, I, I was thinking, no, it can't be. I was thinking of Anolis and thinking like, isn't it nearly 500? I'm like, no, that's absurd. Why <laughs> yeah, no, <it> really is. <laughs> Why would that be the case? It's probably half that. And then I thought, figured it probably drops off dramatically. Holy
1: smokes. Yeah, there's loads of anoles. There's loads of bent-toed geckos yeah. as well. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure. And more to come, no doubt. Wow. So, have you got any other business for this episode?
0: No, I don't. I'm just going to sit here in shock and the number of species. <laughs> of that. Don't let it overwhelm you. It's difficult, man. It's difficult. That's a lot of geckos.
1: <laughs> so uh, i just got a couple of bits. First of all, just to say big thank you to our newest patrons. So we've got Dylan Von Hoff, S. Waller, Silver, and Alex Christensen joining the Patreon gang. So thanks. I mean, it means a lot. It really does. Thank you very much for the support. And um, yeah, this was a patron selected episode. So thank you again, Emily, for choosing such an interesting topic. And if you want to be our Patreon and choose a topic for yourself, you can at patreon.com slash highlights. And I actually this week got around to posting off stickers for all our patrons. Good if you man. join at any level, we'll send you a really cool chameleon sticker that Ben designed. And um yeah, I've been handing them out to people that I see as well. And everyone's loving them. Everyone's <laughs> absolutely loving them. Yeah. That's <laughs> what we like to hear. Yeah. And so, yeah i think that's about it for this episode if you want to correct us if we got anything wrong or if you want to just get in touch for any other reason you can herphighlights at gmail.com we're also on social media and yeah i think that all remains to be said is thank you for listening yeah
0: thanks for listening